Hello and welcome back to Identity Architects, the podcast that's dedicated to spotlighting individuals who are changing the way that data is used to deliver richer customer experiences. I'm your host, Ben Cicchetti, VP of Corporate Marketing here at InfoSum. And in our latest episode, our chairman and CEO, Brian Lesser, sat down with Dana McGraw, SVP Data Science and Audience Modeling at Disney Advertising. Brian and Dana dove into how Dana's background as a college basketball coach helped her to be a better leader, identity and privacy within the gaming industry, Disney's tech and data technology strategy, and how Disney is using first-party data to build better customer experiences. Before I hand it over to Brian, just a quick reminder to hit that subscribe button so you know when the latest episodes of Identity Architects lands. But now, without any further delay, here's Brian and Dana. Welcome to Identity Architects. I'm Brian Lesser, InfoSum's Chairman and CEO, and we are thrilled to be joined today by Dana McGraw at Disney. Dana, thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. We're going to talk a lot about data, identity, analytics. You are the head honcho as far as Disney ad sales is concerned in terms of architecting the future of identity, which is a really important topic. But I want to start out by getting to know a little bit more about you. You've been at the Walt Disney Company for over 10 years. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your career, and how you've ended up in this really important job. Sure, you're right. I've been at Disney for 10, almost 11 years, I think, at this point. I actually started out um, at Disney in what was the interactive division. So it was called Disney Interactive. It was the, the websites and the gaming division and all of that good stuff. So I started out... Um, really doing more traditional analytics and then graduated to uh, the game side, which was really heavy data science as, as the mobile gaming business tends to be. So in my career at Disney, it's sort of been a graduation through there. And, and as we were managing some of the ad supported websites, we kind of were getting ideas from our work on the game side and thought, huh, this might be applicable to advertising. So it was sort of an accidental unfunded uh, move into into the advertising space that's that's worked out pretty well and we've been at this for a while now that's so interesting that you come out of gaming in in, in some ways because we're now i think on a collision course where the advertising business and gaming are coming together so i want to talk a little bit more about that because i think in so many ways gaming has reinvented the concept of identity and what to do with that with, with respect to advertising. But um, if we, it would be great if you could just give us a little bit of insight into how Disney advertising sales interacts with the rest of Disney and what that marketing and advertising strategy is for the company. Yeah, it's interesting having said, you know, we came out of came out of the gaming side and you're right. It's very interesting how you think about identity in the gaming space. Um, but we really kind of go to great lengths to keep our team very separate from the Walt Disney Company at large. Because as you know, as well as anyone, given given the business that you're in, uh, in, the, in the advertising space, really, as we think about the right things to do and privacy regulations and you know different regulations for different data sets, they tend to be quite different than what might happen you know, with personalization, for instance, um, on an app or a website with first party data only that doesn't ever you know, move around or, or have any other use outside of the company's walls. So we 
keep our team and our data, frankly, quite separate um, from, uh, obviously some of the data is duplicative, but we keep the two things very separate so that we're holding ourselves to sort of the highest standard of data governance and regulation. That makes sense. I, I um, as you know, worked for a bit at AT&T and I remember because I managed an advertising business, people saying, well, why can't you just throw all the data together and we'll start to use the telco data for the purposes of selling advertising on Turner properties or CNN? And I would say, well, back up. It's not that easy. <laughs> there are exactly. privacy policies and compliance that that regulates these things. So that, that makes total sense that it's separate. At the same time, of course, you to the extent that you can want to learn from things that are happening in other parts of the company and do your best to sell a, a great targeted and, and uh, performance-driven product. So how do you think about kind of all of the data within the Walt Disney Company, making sure it's kept separate and compliant, but also learning to the extent that you can from other parts of the business? Yeah, and that's a great part, honestly, of working at Disney, generally speaking. I mean, I mentioned three different kind of divisions that I've been in, and there's been some others in between around consumer products. And, you know, we were in the parks division for a brief stint. So the great part about the company is there's so many opportunities, whether it's from a job perspective or otherwise, but that also means there's so many opportunities to learn from one another. So outside of kind of what data sits where, just the exchange of ideas and sort of understanding what's on the agenda at parks and what they're thinking about, how they're working on things, we do a lot of that. So obviously, you know, we kind of know all of the different people working in data or even marketing in different pockets of the company. And so we can really understand, particularly from marketers, what is it that they are looking for when they're advertising? Because they don't only advertise with us, right? right. So right. what is it you're asking of other people? What is it that you're trying to accomplish? And that really helps us think about what we can build next. And then I hope vice versa, right? We've done some work, um, whether it's modeling or identity or, or otherwise, as you know, kind of going back the other way and sharing work back the other way is a lot easier than, than moving things into the advertising space. So we're able to kind of to guide them and, and give them some ideas about the things that we've built as well. So there's definitely a, a great opportunity to exchange ideas and, and really our efforts with some very, very smart people across the company. I, I imagine this team that you've built has grown significantly over time as the notion of data science and analytics has permeated not just the advertising business, but to your point earlier, the parks business and you know the broader content business. How do you build that team and what types of people do you look for um, as, as you're hiring, as, as you're motivating people? Um, we, in our background, we, we noted that you've got a wide range of people from former FBI agents to social media managers, but give us a sense of how you build that team and what kinds of skills you're looking for. Yeah, well, I'll start by saying, like, I am incredibly lucky. Oh, we have a great team. I mean, you've met and worked with some of them, but to, you know, to a person, we have a really great team. And a very eclectic team, I will say, uh, in terms of background. We certainly we do. We have someone who came to us from the FBI and was working as an analyst at the FBI. We have, you know, another person on the team who was a social media manager and kind of thinking about those accounts and those that kind of posting. We also have PhDs in data science. But for me, I feel like things like if someone comes to us and they're clearly intellectually curious, they're you know they're capable. They maybe they don't know SQL. 
we can teach that, you know, and kind of what are we doing if we don't have the capability of teaching that to someone who's super bright? So we try not to limit ourselves or even limit in our job descriptions in kind of a laundry list of things that are like, well, yeah, that would be ideal if someone came in knowing all of that, right? But we're all about kind of room for growth and just finding people who sort of fit with the culture of our team. I mean, my background personally, I actually is an undergrad philosophy major and I coached college basketball for eight years before I started doing any of this. So I'm kind of in a glass house in terms of requisite skill sets to, to be doing this. So we try to be really open-minded and, and think about the fit. And I think part of the, the joy of the team that I get to work with is they really root for one another. There's sort of a, a lack of being competitive with one another in the best possible way. Certainly kind of, oh, I can you know work on this or maybe advance it and that kind of thing. But fundamentally, I think our whole team comes from this place, which I think is really what leads to more joy in life. But they sort of have an understanding there's enough sunshine for everyone. So frankly, when we're recruiting, that's sort of what we, we look for. Like, you know, there's a baseline amount of, you know, quantitative skill that you have to have, but we really are looking for people that we know that we can, we can teach. We feel like we're pretty, pretty good at what we do and at training people. I mean, we're training salespeople as well, right? So that's sort of the baseline that we start from. And we really do look to have PhDs in data scientists in data science sitting next to marketers, because I think the data scientists can certainly benefit from that perspective of a former marketer and vice versa. So we really try to create a team with all of these different kind of functional backgrounds that are learning from each other all the time. That's great. And I, I love that, you know, how you describe the culture and what you're looking for. I didn't know you were a basketball coach, but that that sort of raises the question, how much of those skills that you gained being a college basketball coach do you actually need to transfer and use as a manager of people and, and as an inspirer of ideas and teams. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because it you, on the surface, it doesn't seem like a natural transition, but honestly, it, it kind of was. I did a lot of the kind of sports analytics stuff because I was in before, you know, there was so much software and, and other things you could do. I was doing it by hand, like looking at plus minus charts while teams are on the court and like, wow, these are our two best players, but they don't do very well together and kind of analyzing that kind of stuff. So certainly those skills transfer, but honestly, it's that relationship thing, right? When you're, you're leading a team or, you know, I was an assistant coach for the whole time, but as a part of leading a team of 18 to 21 year old women, 18 to 22 year old women, one, you're an example for them Two, you have to fundamentally understand who can, can be coached really hard. And who can you, you know, motivate that way and who is, is not going to be successful when you coach them that way. So who, you know, needs a little bit of a, you know, a softer approach. And you kind of learn, if you think about in life, have you ever really known anyone who you started screaming at them and they suddenly were like, oh, well, now that you're yelling, I'll, I'll do it better, you know? And so you start to learn all of those things in terms of how you manage people and how you just approach people generally to, to motivate them and get the best out of them. And you figure out how to have people who in some sense can be in competition with one another, but are still able to kind of root for each other. Yeah, that's a great insight. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times in the morning screaming at my children to get their shoes on generally does not work. And yeah. even if I scream louder, it has the opposite effect. It's 
Amazing um, how important that insight is, which people people respond to different types of feedback, but generally it's not raising your voice. Yeah. Um. <laughs> and certainly not raising your voice at them in front of a group of other people. That That right. is generally a failure at all times. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, so I want to talk a little bit about identity and privacy, um, you know, jumping into two areas that, you know, both of us are passionate about, identity and privacy. First off, do you find those two concepts at odds with each other or are they more complementary to each other? I don't find them to be at odds. Um, I'm not sure if I would say complementary necessarily, um, but if you think about it, kind of the background in the, the mobile gaming business, for the most part, if you think about mobile games, you know, whatever, whatever it may be, you know, for us, a big game was frozen freefall, right, at, at the time. There's not a lot of asking, uh, you know, hi, is your name Brian? Uh, you know, how old are you? What are you? You don't ask those questions because the structure of the business is essentially your, it's sort of free to play games for the most part is the space that we were in. And then people will pay 99 cents or whatever for a pack of new lives or new opportunities or whatever the case may be. So you're sort of operating in anonymity term used loosely, right? But there's no business greater than the games business in thinking about how you're personalizing that offer. When do you offer those new lives? When do you offer it as a package versus a single thing? You know, when are you sending notifications to bring someone back into the game? And that is happening for the most part in the absence of PII for sure, right? But in the absence of really identifiable data. So when you're coming at it from that background, you're really kind of always thinking about identity anonymously. And so that lends itself to be compliant for one and to understand that sort of the regulations that in that are in place are in place for, for a valid reason, but there's plenty of ways to offer an optimal guest experience, even in that space. Right. And we have to get there, right? I mean, if, if you use the um, test of looking at the way children consume media, for example, and we obviously don't target children with advertising, but you know, my kids live in things like Roblox and Fortnite and, 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 and other places where identity takes on an entirely different meaning. And if you look at the transition from web 2.0 to web three, this um, transference of data is going to get harder, not easier. Yeah. And the concept of identity will get more abstract, not um, more descriptive. So, you know, I think Disney's been really on the cutting edge of that, understanding better than anyone what will come of, you know, from the content business and how media will evolve. If we get more specific on that, um, there's lots of changes coming, even in the traditional advertising business, from cookies being deprecated to legislation in this country uh, and other parts of the world. Apple's made some significant changes around mobile identity. And Google, of course, is famously going to deprecate first the cookie, but ultimately the notion of persistent identity you know, at, at, at large. So um, what are you most focused on in all of that in terms of preparing for the near term and the long term? Yeah, I'll start by saying this. For us, because we're a part of the Walt Disney Company, independent of 
the advertising business versus some other line of business. We all know from the, the day you get here that our kind of North Star is, is this a better experience for our guest? Is this something that our guests want from us? And is it creating a better experience for them? So knowing that is kind of inarguable and, and you know, it's a non-starter to go any other direction than that. So as we think about all of, you know, the changes in the space, we have an abundance of first party data, but we're using that first party data only for that purpose. Is it a better guest experience? Is it better for our consumer? In the advertising space, that may mean, is it the right ad to the right consumer at the right time, right? And so, oh, this is of interest to me. This ad makes sense to me as to why I'm receiving this ad. Uh, so is it a better ad experience, content experience, et cetera? So I think as we think about the changing space, obviously we're very focused on first party data, but that's not new. I mean, that's, that's something, you know, we kind of laugh, but if you think back to the, the beginnings of the parks, right? The parks have really always been on the cutting edge of data and first party data term used very loosely, right? But like data that they're, they're understanding about how people navigate the parks and wow, this ride is too crowded. Let's move people to that ride. You know, these trash cans should be this far apart because that's how long people are willing to carry the trash in their hand before they throw it down. Like all of those kinds of things are sort of baked into who we are as the Walt Disney Company. So even as you think about cookies going away or, you know, changes in mobile identity or different regulation, for us, our focus is really so much on first party data and that guest experience that certainly I focus a lot on making sure that we're in line with all the things that are coming and we're prepared for those things. But on the other hand, because of what our focus is, it doesn't feel so jarring. Like, oh my goodness, you know, this is going to happen. What are we going to do? We, we don't have, you know, any, any way to work with this. And that's just not true because the way that we've built our practice has really been with the ultimate respects for the consumer and the guest. And so for us, it's just making sure that we maintain that. And we find as long as that's sort of our, our guidepost, uh, for lack of a better word, then, then we're generally speaking in a good place. It's a really great point. And I think we as an industry focus a lot on technological changes like deprecation of cookies, or we focus on legislation, but actually the bigger trend is what you've identified. And it's both from data-centric companies that care about their customers like Disney, where it really is an imperative from the bottom of the organization up to the CEO that you do right by the customer and only do with that data what the customer anticipates you're going to do with the data all around a, a great experience. But also on the flip side of it, I think that customers um, or guests, as you call them, are becoming more concerned about how data is being used, not by a first party like the Walt Disney Company, but across the hundreds, if not thousands of intermediaries that buy and sell um, the data. And, and I think this is more pervasive in Europe, um, but it's coming and it's sort of a wave that's um, cresting in the US. So you've made a lot of investment in technology around that, right? I mean, and one of those areas is um, your overall data strategy, but your cleanroom strategy in particular. So can you talk a little bit about the role that cleanrooms play or more broadly, the investments that you're making and how you ingest data, how you work with partners, how you care for that data? Sure. And you're right. Cleanrooms are an integral part of the strategy and have been for a couple of years. 
Um, and I think probably why we embarked on this, I would say relatively early compared to, to other folks in this space is to your point, it's happening in other places. It's certainly going to only, you know, be more pervasive in the U S but also we want to do the right thing by the consumer. So, you know, we're very focused on our first party data. We're super proud of it. You know, we, we know what we're capable of, but that doesn't mean in the advertising business that people don't want to, you know, historically onboard their data or leverage their own first party data in some way to make sure we're delivering the right ad at the right time. Right. And then the other piece of that is measurement. So they want to be able to, to measure their spend or measure their outcomes. So what does that mean in terms of, you know, how we look at data and, and what's okay, what's not okay. So I think for us, when we started thinking about clean rooms, we, we certainly want to enable people to understand, you know, that there is a great outcome from their spend with us. And we want to enable them to leverage the data they've worked so hard um, to build. But how do we do that and still feel good about, you know, what we're doing in the space? And so clean rooms for us really was like our foray into like, okay, this this traditional idea of sort of fully onboarding data and you know, that that's probably not the long-term path, whether because of regulation or because of, you know, consumers not feeling like that's what they want to see happen. And so clean rooms really for us was a start of like, okay, this is a way for, and I I've quoted you several times now, Ryan, you, you sort of said it's the non-movement of data. And so uh, I've, given a couple different interviews recently. And in both, I said, you know what, actually, Brian Lesser from InfoSum says this is exactly right. It's the non-movement of data. So we're still able to, you know, on behalf, deliver insights to a brand around, oh, this is a, an audience or, or aggregated audience is of high value to you. Here's what we understand about that audience. And then also to then activate on their behalf of a campaign based on those insights or based on that. But via a clean room, we're not passing data back and forth. Not, no one's keeping anything. Nothing's changing hands at all. So we feel really comfortable about the way that we're able to do that on their behalf with clean rooms. Yeah, I, I, thank you for quoting me. I, I'm, I'm flattered. I think um, I was part of your data and technology showcase that you did um, last month um, in, the, in the last couple of months or so. But um, I, I think you did a really nice job of describing that concept, which is we do recognize that we are in the advertising business and our trading partners want to learn from what we know about our customers. But at the same time, we don't have to share data with them. We can transfer insight back and forth, but we can do that in a private and secure way. Um, and that is, you know, the notion of a clean room. And I think it's better for advertisers. Ultimately, it's better for first party data companies and it's better for consumers. The problem as you well know, is we've been doing it a certain way in this industry for 20 years. And overcoming that inertia can be a challenge, even if everybody recognizes it's better. So help me understand how you think about rolling this out. You have, I'm guessing, thousands of partners that buy advertising from the Walt Disney Company, and not all of them are going to be prepared to stand up a clean room solution um, overnight. So how do you think about the progression from introducing something like this and investing in it yourself to then extending it out to all of your partners? Yeah. So I'll, I'll start with how we thought about it for ourselves first, um, before kind of engaging any kind of outside brands or entities. We really thought about it in kind of, as I described, 
insights first, activation second, measurement, not exactly third, but we'll call it third, but those are the three pillars, right? To, to think about it in that order for ourselves and also, you know, then next for brands. And you're right, is not every brand is in the position to kind of architect this or has their data in a, in a state that this is easy for them to do, or frankly, you know, has the resources or bandwidth to get this going. So that's really why we started thinking about the insights piece first, because let's presume, you know, they don't have the resources to do that. If you tell us what kind of audience it is that's high value to you, just, you know, tell us verbally, give us an idea. We can still deliver some insights in that space, even if your data is not totally prepared, right? Um, the other approach that we're taking is being very consultative. Because we've been at this a little longer than most, being able to say, okay, well, this is how we set it up. This is something that might help you. Um, and uh, particularly in our work with you all, it, it's a little uh, you know, easier to get up and running and info some than in some other cases. And so that's really what we worked on with you first and foremost was that insights case. All right, let's, let's see what we can get in here. Let's see what insights we can deliver and let's build from there. So we really thought about it as pretty iterative. And you know, just from logically, we've thought about it, kind of really larger brands tend to have more data scientists, more data potentially, and so more technology and ability to get up and running. So as we've approached it, we've really thought about kind of larger brands also at the holding company level because they have a vested interest in getting this right as well. Um, so we thought about it kind of from those two at first. And then obviously we know over time there's a really long tail. Um, if you think about the measurement space of performance marketers, like no one really has more at stake here in the measurement perspective than a performance marketer that's trying to operate in real time and optimize. So how do we approach performance marketers for the measurement use case. So we've really kind of been thinking about it that way. And um, we announced this in our tech and data showcase as well. We were working with a company called Habu um, that does a really nice job of kind of sitting on top of data, I would say, to make it a little more palatable without kind of writing SQL back and forth and all of that good stuff to really help um, maybe some brands that aren't quite there yet to get up and running a, a little more quickly without a huge capital investment before they totally understand if this is the direction they're gonna go. And coming back to gaming for a moment, I, I imagine when you start to roll this out, it applies to traditional um, advertisers, to traditional um, publishers, but how long do you think before we extend this concept of clean rooms and, and sort of non-movement of data to things like CTV, retail media networks, and, and gaming? Yeah, so for us, we have a very large CTV footprint. So in our case, that's a, that, it's another really big part sort of of why we got there. So we have our own in-house identity graph that we've constructed. Um, and we did that in part because every time we meet with, whether it's an agency or a brand, for the last several years since the acquisition of Hulu. There's this notion of, you know, the way people were organized was sort of siloed in linear television. And then there's the digital folks over here. And then, you know, and then CTV, like, where do we put that? Is that with the digital team or is it the linear team? And then how do we buy it? And so a big part of this for us has been in that identity graph, being able to, through our insights say, 
here's the deduplicated audience. Here's what it looks like across platforms. Here's areas of interest that might never have occurred to you, right, in our content. And so I think it's fundamental to us that CTV is there. And I think it's a great question because as we look at emerging measurement solutions, a big thing for us that we want to understand and analyze before we go, go down any path is their ability to accurately reflect CTV inventory because it's different than the mobile space where that, you know, for a time there were kind of mobile device IDs flying around everywhere and there's, you know, relatively easy access for multiple different parties. Um, historically, it's not exactly right in the CTV space. It's kind of fragmented. It's a little bit more, you know, difficult. And certainly over time, we'll get a, more and more restrictive. So it's interesting for us, that's sort of fundamental to working with anyone is, are you able to accurately reflect this? And two, that's what we are doing with our clean room for brands and agencies is helping them in the planning phase of understanding how do I buy across linear digital connected TV in a really seamless way and understand it. Um, I think it's really interesting that you mentioned retail media networks because that I think that's only going to grow um, as those those guys really develop. I mean, they have an abundance of data, you know, working on how it's structured and and what what really the the offer is and sort of, you know, how it appeals to both consumers and, and advertisers. I think that's only going to grow over time and it will be really interesting to see how that works from sort of a closed loop and how they end up engaging with more traditional publishers versus not, or being a little more siloed. I think that's, that's to be determined, but I certainly think it's only going to grow over time. I agree. The notion of data collaboration is complex, obviously. And I think everyone has a slightly different idea of how it's going to develop. But I look to the leadership of companies like Disney. I think NBC Universal has a somewhat um, not similar, but, but sort of like-minded strategy with respect to how they want to do business. You mentioned agencies, many of which have bought data services companies, data assets, and now we have very large advertisers that are feeling the same. Um, but some of these changes tend to be more complex in the short term and then simplify over time. So, you know, when you think about collaboration, um, you know, broadly across the industry, do you have any predictions on how this is going to develop and what timeline this is going to develop on? Yeah. As, if we're talking about clean rooms specifically, I certainly think we're right on the, the verge of sort of a tipping point, right? Because you know, our, in our work with you, we've seen, you know, multiple engagements that I, I feel like have been quite successful. Um, and we're, we're working in, in several different kind of types of, of clean rooms or brands of clean rooms, I guess you could say. Um, and so we're certainly seeing that, but we're also still seeing that, that we're not quite over the hump yet of sort of the, the technological barriers that exist for a lot of brands. So it's certainly not to a point of being table stakes because of the technological work. So I would say we're probably a year to two years away of really kind of going across it. Maybe it's driven by, uh, you know, different legislation regulations. And so that, that sort of pushes us there, or maybe it's just the time 
for people to build the technology to get up and running. But I certainly think that that over time it is it is going to become very common practice and necessary common practice um, for everyone to get there. I think you know the the outstanding piece really and sort of what the, the podcast is about is the identity piece, right? Is how is that resolved? Because if you think about many vendors in the in not in the cleaner space, but in the you know the data collaboration space, we'll call it, they're relying on third party identity. And if you think about how that data is acquired, that's going to get more difficult over time. You know, with without the use of cookies and pixels that don't quite work because half the population isn't you know captured. All of those kinds of things are going to make that third party identity piece get a lot more difficult. I think over time. And so when we think about how we match and resolve data, what, what is the solution for identity? Because even again, in the measurement space, each of the different emerging measure, measurement vendors are using a different, some have their own identities, the unit solution, but most have a third party identity spine. And over time, what's that gonna look like and how are they kind of solve for that? Because, you know, if we're doing it one way and, you know, insisting on CTV being reflected a certain way. And another publisher has a, a totally different way that they're asking them to resolve identity. Ultimately, if you're trying to compare outcomes, that's not apples to apples anymore. So kind of what are we doing to, to resolve that in that space? So I think the clean room piece, certainly in the next two years, we're going to kind of cross, cross over the, the technological hurdles and be in a place where it's really common practice. I think the next hurdle will really be that identity piece and, and what does that look like? Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's well said. I mean, I, I always, um, when, when I'm asked the question, say, well, the days of having dozens, if not hundreds of identity providers, all of which are interoperable depending on the market or the marketplace, those days are over. It, it just, it can't, that, that was probably not sustainable Ever, but certainly now in the environment we live and work in, it's it's no longer an option. Um, and I think to your point, there there will be a midterm where clean rooms become more popular, and we probably, as an industry, settle on a reasonable number of identity providers that are somewhat interoperable. And then I, I think looking at leaders like Disney we're going to arrive at a place where there are no third-party identifiers and Disney has its identity system and it's going to do business with customers and partners based on that system and that system alone. I mean, I don't imagine that's going to happen quickly or will be easy to, to get to, but, but that's, you know, I, I think what's going to happen across the industry. Isn't it so interesting that, you know, you think about digital and addressable kind of advertising and inventory. And it's like, oh, this is great because it's actually addressable. And, you know, it's the, I think the, the line that was used for a long time was like person to person and that kind of stuff. But if you think about the direction we're going because of identity and everything else, like linear TV was relying on a panel for a long time. And there was kind <laughs> of a reason, you know, yeah. like it's just interesting to watch how this is all going. And we sort of moved into this is great. It's addressable. And, you know, it's, more direct. And then you're like, wow, but if the identity can't be resolved, are we, are we back in that, that place that we just came from? So it's just, it's kind of interesting to watch the kind yeah. of the circle happen of how this works. Yeah. Um, what's old is new again. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the industry evolves faster than you think it will. And the changes tend to be, you know, more significant than you think they'll be. Um, this has been awesome, 
Dana. I want to end um, with some rapid fire questions um, because we've gotten in the weeds of data identity, clean rooms, and and the overall um, marketing advertising strategy for Disney. So these are meant to be fun and and meant so that the audience can learn a little bit more about you. What was your first job? <laughs> My very first job, believe it or not, I worked at a car wash. I was the person when they pulled up the car, I did all the vacuuming and there was like a hierarchy. You wore a different color shirt for if you were the vacuumer or you got moved up to actually armor all the tires in the rims. That was my very first job. I think I was the only woman that worked at the entire operation. Oh my gosh. I love that. I always wondered about that. It seems like the armor all person is just like, has such a, uh, an ego compared to everyone else. Is that well, the armor top person gets the tips because they're the last one because they armor all the tires and they do the rims. So they're the person who that's why the hierarchy is you want to graduate to armor all. Genius. I always put the tips in the box because I, I had a feeling that might be the case. Um, <laughs> so what do you love about what you do right now and the industry you're in? I love it's funny. I, I love the ability to innovate and be creative in a really quantitative space. So it's it's kind of a running joke. I don't have a creative bone in my body. Um, it's a running joke on our team that I don't think in pretty. So forget it if you want a pretty PowerPoint or any such. I can't do it. If you want an Excel spreadsheet, I can look at it for 50 seconds and tell you exactly what all the lines say. So <laughs> I think it's really cool to be coming from kind of that perspective where I, I would, I'm not traditionally creative, but to work in an industry that is exceedingly creative and be a part of that industry, but from a data perspective where it's a kind of a different kind of creativity. And then obviously the other part of the job that I love is I just adore the team that I get to work with. We just have a lot of fun and we like each other a ton, which makes it a great place to be. That's great. What keeps you up at night? Part of it is that team uh, is wanting to retain talent and keep that team in place and, and bring in new talent and maintain culture. And the other other part is just making sure that we're doing right by our consumers and do, in doing right by the consumers being completely compliant with all of the re regulations and legislation that come our way. That's great. I think that's a good place to end, which is a focus on the consumer and the guest, um, because really everything we do in the world of marketing, advertising, you know, should, should be about that experience. So um, thank you so much, Dana. We really appreciate your time joining us on the Identity Architects podcast. Um, and we wish you all the best. And it's a, it's a privilege to talk to you. Thanks again to Dana for joining us on Identity Architects. That was an amazing conversation. It's fascinating to hear about Dana's journey to and within Disney and to learn more about Disney's approach to data clean rooms and first-party data strategy as a whole. All that leaves for me to do is to remind you to hit that subscribe button so you know when the next episode of Identity Architects lands. But until then, thanks for listening.